we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Hello everyone, this is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today we're continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. We've usually been talking about science and medicine and COVID topics, but that's really a departure point of possible things to discuss, and there's certainly plenty of things to discuss these days. If listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.news, N-E-W-S, forward slash pulse, P-U-L-S-E. I'm really very happy today to introduce today's guest, Dr. Daniel Klein. Dr. Klein is Professor of Economics and JIN Chair at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where he leads a program in the political philosopher and economist Adam Smith. Professor Klein is also Associate Fellow at the Ratio Institute in Stockholm, Research Fellow at the Independent Institute, and Editor-in-Chief of Econ Journal Watch. Professor Klein has published studies on policy issues involving toll roads, urban transit, auto emissions, credit reporting, and the FDA, which is an interest of mine. And he's written on why government officials can believe in the goodness of bad policies and the relationship between liberty, dignity, and responsibility. And dignity is another interest of, of mine that's also under-discussed and under-considered in our modern society. So Daniel, let's start. What's been on your mind lately? I was hoping today I could talk about Alex, Alexis de Tocqueville um, and his warnings that he gave in the 1830s about, as he puts it, what kind of despotism democratic nations have to fear. And uh, so the theme for today is, are we on the verge of Tocqueville's worst nightmare? So if if it's okay, I'll I'll say a little bit about what Tocqueville's big message here is. And it's from Democracy in America, his most famous work from the 1830s. In the introduction to that, he he writes, the entire book that you are going to read was written under the pressure of a sort of religious terror in the author's soul. So he says at the very beginning. And so then the question is, what is the object of this terror? And he he develops that throughout the two volumes. The first volume was 1835. The second was 1840. And the full terror is expressed in the second volume. And I want to suggest that um, there's actually two objects of terror and um, in, in other words, he first lays out one object of terror, which I want to describe, and I, I want to call that the bad. And then he himself says, I have come to see an even worse object of terror, and that I'll call the very bad. Does that make sense? So this is, yeah. So this is his travels in the United States, <clears throat> a little in Canada, looking at our democratic society and having these misgivings and anxieties. Yes. He, he was a young man when he traveled. He was born in 1805 um, and, and subsequent to the two-volume work, which was uh, made a big impact and much noted immediately. Uh, he became quite well-known. 
and then worked in government. Uh, he died at the young age of 53, unfortunately, in 1859, I think it is. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and Democracy in America is his most famous work. He also published a volume on the um, Ancien Regime and the French Revolution, which is related to all of this, actually. Um, but so may I tell you about the bad and the very sure. bad? These sure. are his two objects of terror. So the bad <clears throat> is... Um, he speaks, and I'll, I'll, I want to use some of his words. I'm using uh, the, the Mansfield and Winthrop translation. Here, quote, is an authority always on its feet, keeping watch that my pleasures are tranquil, flying ahead of my steps to turn away every danger without my needing to think about it. This authority is, quote, absolute master of my freedom and my life. It monopolizes movement and existence. The nature of absolute power in democratic centuries is neither cruel nor savage, but it is minute and vexatious. Despotism of this kind does not ride roughshod over humanity. He says a little bit more about the bad that I'd like to share. Um, it seems that if despotism came to be established in the democratic nations of our day, it would be more extensive and milder than in centuries past, he means, and it would degrade men without tormenting them. He speaks of an immense tutelary power looming over us like a, quote, schoolmaster, seeking to keep citizens, quote, fixed irrevocably and irrevocably in childhood. It pretends to relieve them of the, quote, troubles of thinking and pain of living. The sovereign covers the surface of society, quote, with a network of small, complicated, painstaking, uniform rules. The sovereign, quote, does not destroy. It prevents things from being born. It does not tyrannize. It hinders, compromises, enervates, extinguishes, dazes, and finally reduces each nation to being nothing more than a herd of timid and industrious animals of which the government is the shepherd. That's the bad. So he's yeah. talking about the government as superego, as external superego on everyone, basically. Oh, if you say so. I'm I don't do Freudian stuff <laughs> myself. I don't I don't reject it. I don't pretend to really know it. I've got my own notions about the ontology of the human being, but um something perhaps, I mean, he's talking about this immense tutelary power, like a great schoolmaster in this centralized, I don't know, yeah, authority, uh, irresistible so authority. Sorry? In history, what was he saying? There was no inter interstate, in, you know, commerce commission limiting, you know, what you could sell, what you could buy, where you well, could do it. There were no road laws, you know, and so on. What, what was he seeing that, okay. that, that stuck with All right. Well, the question, a question here is, what was he seeing where? The title is Democracy in America, but the book and what I've been speaking about is not specifically about America. It's about democratic society, democratic centuries. And he is speaking to France. He has France in mind for a lot of this. And in the other work, he showed that France had a highly centralized, highly governmentalized set of systems and rules under the, the, the old regime 
and that that whole system was actually taken on board by the Republic. And so he sees France as already very far down this road. So he sees democracy or democratic verbalisms and forms on top of what is already a highly centralized system in France. And he's kind of suggesting, is this going to, is there some way we can reverse this? Can we learn from America? Is America also going to go down that path? And he is deathly afraid that it is. He's deathly afraid that all of us are. That is truly his great warning. Uh -huh. does, that, does that make sense? Yes. So the administrative state is really what he's talking about and the lack of accountability. So far, yeah, it's the administrative state and a kind of superficial democracy, this tutelary power. And at this point, this is still just the bad that we've treated. There is still a kind of equality of subjection. So there's still a kind of rule of law. He says it does not tyrannize. And you can imagine it being a kind of um, following its own rules, at least. So he says he's he says then in, in volume two. He speaks of a progression of his own sentiment. OK, so that's always kind of a dramatic move by an author to say, I used to think just this, but now I've seen something new. He says, I had always believed that this sort of regulated, mild, peaceful certitude, uh, servitude, whose picture I've just painted, could be combined better than one imagines with some of the external forms of freedom, including that the sovereign is closely overseen by a really elected and independent legislature. But then he says that after five years, I now am afraid of an even worse object. So this is the second object of terror, the very bad, as I put it. So let me tell you a little bit about this. So the nightmare, I'm afraid, gets worse. Um, <clears throat> he turns to the what he calls the worst possible object. When the concentrated uh, lawmaking and administrative powers are deposited, quote, in the hands of an irresponsible body of men. He then paints uh, this very bad that I described. Citizens, quote, renounce the use of their wills. They lose, quote, little by little, the faculty of thinking, feeling, and acting by themselves. There's a breakdown in the rule of law and the undoing of the equality of subjection, which is to say there's sort of two-tier justice. There's weaponization. The administrative state combines with a wicked party or faction into merging into one. And then they're weaponizing all of this. So there's not even this uniform kind of tutelary schoolmaster that we all live under. Uh, we, um, let's see, the very bad is a rogue, corrupt regime. This is my words in which this has disappeared. Um, and let me quote him a little more. Those who want to make a revolution might take possession of the machinery of government all set up, which can be executed by a coup. Speaking of the, quote, despotism of factions, he writes of a few men who, quote, alone speak in the name of an absent and inattentive crowd. They change laws and tyrannize at will over mores, that is to say mores, you know, morals, and one is astonished at seeing the small number of weak and unworthy hands into which a great people can fall. 
Uh, and he says he says more about this. And um, let's see, he he speaks of um, people coming to prefer under this 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 sort of propaganda and intimidation, equality in servitude rather than inequality in freedom. The crushed citizen, quote, enjoys these goods as a tenant without a spirit of ownership. Maybe that reminds you of you will own nothing and be happy. Oh, yeah, that's the end result of where we're going if we keep going there. Yes, exactly. This is exactly what he's warning us of and foreseeing. Um, can honest elections be maintained? Quote, the dangers of the elective system, therefore, grow in direct proportion to the influence exerted by the executive power on affairs of state. Quote, to wish that the representative of the state remains armed with a vast power and be elected is to express, according to me, two contradictory wills. In other words, he sees the centralized power holders corrupting the election system. Um, the master, that's his word, the master himself sees uh, himself as a foreigner in his country, and he treats his subjects as having been defeated. And he speaks about an anarchy that will come as a conquest, I'm sorry, consequence of this despotism. And with all the crazy stuff happening in our streets and, and the protests and the psyops and the so on, I think we can kind of get a feeling for that. It's happening around the world a great deal. It's happening, of course, to some extent in our own country. So that's basically that's basically what I wanted to say. I think this is very worth knowing about. That is to say, Tocqueville's great warning. It's extremely richly developed and it's very profound and it's quite it's quite early in the sense of seeing the future central, highly centralized 1984-ish, if you like, tyranny that can, you know, come, that can form in our supposedly liberal democracy West. And so, I feel like maybe we are on the verge of the I very bad. I agree with you. But I think that what he is not seeing that the, in the way that he puts it, is the difference in the checks and balances that in theory we had in the United States in, in our government system compared to what they had in France, in, in the French Republic, as it were. And I don't know the intimacies of the, of the French Republic, not having studied it much, but um, it, you know, our checks and balances have a limit. They were good, but, but not complete. And one of the lacks of completion is the corruption of... The, the checks and balance system, which means that we have, we have three official branches of checks and balances, but once they all get corrupted and in alignment, they, they are therefore no longer self-correcting. Then we have the fourth estate, the media, which in theory used public opprobrium and government embarrassment as a tool, as a check and, you know, to control mm -hmm. overreaching of the corrupted other three. However, once that agency became an institution, became part of the corruption system, then the whole system had no longer any checks and balances, which is where we're at now. He was obviously seeing that more intensely in France in his era 
than we have. It took a lot longer here because we had a stronger check and balance system that has ultimately failed because it's been corrupted for 60 or 70 years of increasing motivation by the the the, the, the parties interested in doing the corruption and without recognizing why they were even doing this with, with some basically pie in, in the sky theoretical ideas about our social and political life that had no grounding in how um, human nature works, what people are willing to do, what people are willing to tolerate, and ran roughshod over all of that repeatedly to this point that we've gotten to now. Uh, and, and you know, we see it playing out to anybody with eyes open. And this is something that, that's been my problem in COVID from the beginning of COVID that the great majority of the population just went along with all the lies and corruption that was pandered to them as, as supposedly plausible you know, arguments about science works this way because we proclaim it, not because we're showing you the evidence. And, and people believed all this nonsense. Nobody pushed back. And the people who pushed back, three quarters of them were actually thinking, show me the proof, show me the evidence. You don't, if I don't see the evidence, I don't believe you. And then and the quarter of, of the ones who pushed back were doing so because they don't believe the government any way, no matter anything, because they have their fringe contrarian personalities that aligned with us for a while. Yeah. And, so, you know, yeah, I was just going to say, so I think Tocqueville's warning has proved to be very, you know, apropos, uh, very on target. I think it's something we should really take seriously. And and just like you say, I think bringing the media in is like as you do is crucial um, and, and medicine and science. I think Tocqueville, because he put a lot of emphasis on the administrative state, again, which he was diagnosing back in the old regime in France uh, and its power and its ways and its tendencies that once, you know, more and more of social affairs becomes governmentalized in one way or another that they can work all of these different structures some of them even putatively private toward their common if you like quasi-religion and or party or faction and that's and yeah control and you know you mentioned covid but i just want to actually could I, could I interrupt for a second? We, we got to a commercial break point, so let, let's take a brief break and we'll be back shortly and continue. So everybody, please stay tuned. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. You've all heard Dr. McCullough and others share over and over the value of keeping your sinuses cleansed. It's a smart move all year, but even more so when we're cooped up inside. It's not really open for debate any longer. Those that live smart and live well pay attention to nasal and oral hygiene. Cofix RX has just the tools for the job with our nasal and throat cleanse. Click the CofixRx banner on americaoutloud.shop to get 20% off your entire order. 
That's right, AmericaOutloud.shop. Use coupon code OUTLOUD. That's coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off your entire order. Use CofixRx because it works. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Wish with, with Professor Daniel Klein. So we were just talking about Tocqueville's understanding of the administrative state in France and his worry about the administrative state growing in the United States that he was touring in the, in the 1830s and 40s. And, you know, it, it got so, it, to many of us, we, we kind of, it's our, our bargain with the devil before COVID, it was a bargain that we know that the government is doing stuff that might not be in our interest, that we know that it, it's, you know, now we know all the nefariousness of all of the, the secret uh, CIA acts all over the world, subverting democracies and and, and, and new governments all over the world for a, a supposed benefit to, to American citizens that turns out to be not actually true or not true in some cases and nefarious and and the, the, for us to think about the united states as uh, the the city on the hill the uh, ethical structure the the one that that i've always thought well we, the united states is not perfect we had slavery we had other things you know that was part of our birth that was a social ill that we got rid of and the north got rid of it and then we forced the south to get rid of it we were still working through the remnants of, of that period nevertheless we have aimed to make ourselves an ethical, just society to proclaim to the world that a democratic republic kind of society that we are is the optimal form of government that everybody else should emulate. And now what, what we've seen in the last four years is that we're just as corrupt and banana republic as anywhere else, that the, the people who took control because they were trained through our universities for the last 50 or 60 years have no ability for critical thought, that they only push back on slogans. Everything is a, is a slogan with, without a justification, without a thought, you know, for the purpose of obtaining political power only. And we have a political party on the left whose interest is party uber alles. That it's very clear everything that it's done for the last, you know, at least 25 or 30 years, if not longer, has been to a, a accomplish absolute power, not just to be a political party, for, for supporting the, the the benefit and the goodness of the country. And, you know, I, true believers on that side may argue with me, but I think they're delusional because I think that, that they, again, it falls into the trap of human nature is what it is because of millennia of our existence and evolution. And one is not, is not going to change human nature because you have some cockamamie theory from Karl Marx or anybody else. Yeah, my feeling about the Democrat Party and left parties in general of, of recent decades is that a vicious tail has wagged the party. A, kind of a, a kind of a the vicious tail. If you think of a distribution of virtue and vice of party members and that the lower end, there's the most vicious, the most vice oriented people in the party. And that's kind of a, the vicious tail. And that's wagging. That's wagged the party. And they've become the elite. In fact, in fact, that is a human nature thing that the extremists tend to obtain the most psychological authority that 
if you're mm -hmm. part of a, of an identity group that the, the purest people are the ones who have the authority and because everybody else is unsure of their status and so they get accused of not being yeah. members of the group if they disbelieve or disbehave. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the vicious tail can start using extraordinary means to enforce conformity and, and suppress dissent within the party. And then they have the party in their control. Hayek spoke of the worst getting to the top in, in totalitarian systems and, and left-oriented systems. And so now, now you have a party that's, in some sense, you know, the very bad faction that high. I'm sorry, that Tocqueville is 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 diagnosing here, trying to imp impose it on everybody. I would say, uh, uh, yeah, he speaks of their beliefs. Let's see. I don't know if I read this part. Um, let me just see if I can put my finger on that. Their beliefs imp imposes them and makes them penetrate souls by a sort of immense pressure of the minds of all on the intellect of each. That's all the propaganda. And that's also the censorship, which is the other side of the coin for here. Right. You got you to recognize, always keep in mind that propaganda and censorship have to go together because if you don't have censorship, the big lies will be torn to shreds by people like you, Harvey. But, so they need to suppress you because otherwise your, their big lies will be torn to shreds. So the censorship is a necessary part of the prop of sustaining the propaganda. We see both in full effect today. Um, that's just part of the panoply of this leftist des despotism. I call it leftpotism. You mentioned yes. the COVID, the COVID uh, actions, but there's climate, ESG, central bank digital currency, debanking, DEI, weaponization of everything, election corruption, propaganda and censorship, like I've been saying, surveillance, and let's not forget, as you mentioned, foreign wars. Right, right. And whose interests are being gained by those foreign wars? It's all a big, it's all a big bullying, intimidation, centralization, shut up, you know, knuckle under or we will hurt you. That's the essential yes. message of the WEF, knuckle under or we will hurt you. Yes. Um, but the, as I've always thought of the WF as a villains, but I've been heard other people assert that the WEF is not an independent agency. It's under the control of a few large banking institutions that are really controlling it. And it's hard to know, you know, any of those things are possible. It's above my pay grade. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I, I have been observing for almost the entire pandemic is the use of censorship. Censorship is admission of defeat, that if an adversary is willing, has um, in a debate, ha has information and data and logic and the ability to make a case opposite to the case you claim, then they would use that. If they thought they had half a chance to win to, to, or to beat back my case, they would mount their case, but they don't because they know that they don't have the ability to do that, which means they have no evidence, which means when they censor, you know that they've lost, that they have lost the debate by because they're censoring because they don't have the, the counter evidence. I agree. And, you know, and it's, it's, I think that the general public doesn't actually get this, but it's, it should hit them right in between their eyes. When something is censored, it's right. 
Okay, the the fact of censorship makes the thing that's being censored correct by definition. Well, by by presumption, it doesn't make it right. necessarily correct. Right. But in a kind of like right. you should you should now shift the burden of proof onto the censor. Correct, correct. That the, that it's highly likely, almost certain, that it's correct because the censor, if it's something that's so obviously wrong, the censor would say, "Well, da 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 da. Here's why," and 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 that's it, and say so obviously yeah. wrong. That was the whole idea of of classical liberalism and liberal democracy. That you know. We keep a lid on government and we allow freedom of expression, freedom of speech, a freedom of the press and, and you know, have the, you know, the, the marketplace of ideas. And there the left has turned against it. I mean, the left is going like CCP. They want a one party system, it seems. And they want to rule, uh, outlaw or criminalize MAGA and so on. Well, that's just again, it's using abusing power. Yeah. To stay stay in power using abusing power yeah to all yeah legal and otherwise to stay in power and um i think you know tocqueville so uh, in math there is there is um systems uh, of of mathematics where there are what's called absorbing states that means you can have a state of nature and that if you happen to align all of your particles or motions or, or outcomes into an absorbing state, you can't get out. Normally, you could go both directions, but, but absorbing states are places where everything collapses in like a black hole and you can't get out. And this is what a corrupt democratic, uh, a corrupted democratic society ends up with, is in, in an absorbing state of government where once it's in power, that the only way to get it out of power is to leak out little bits of power around the edges, like black holes very slowly leak out photons un until they explode, you know, which takes for forever, like mm -hmm. 70 years for the Soviet Union, that totalitarian states control all of their power around everywhere so that nothing can leak out. And, you know, and the other problem that I see is <clears throat> that democratic societies, real democratic societies are in large, very passive very tolerant that basically it, it is what Tocqueville was, was uh, observing, saying that these are just eager but and nice but passive business people. That's what makes up the U.S. It's a, it's an army of business people doing their navel gazing business work, you know, and letting the government run them to the degree that they can still do their business and and live their middle class or whatever lives, and that there's little here anyway, much less philosophical objection and much less political objection in the democratic society as a whole than there might be in other places, certainly like France and Europe as a whole, which are as a much more activist society, although that activism is again, <clears throat> much more on the left than anywhere else. Um, you know, the, the cafe crowd sitting about talking about their socialism. Um, but, but so we are very passive. Uh, Yes, certainly. Um, and I understand your absorbing state metaphor and the, the deep concern that there might be no coming back from a kind of tyrannical, despotic, um, uh, very bad that Tocqueville warns of. Um, I do believe, you know, hope springs eternal and there's always a thing. Well, first of all, th there's a power to truth. 
Uh, that's, you know, why we call it the truth. <laughs> um, and so as long as, you know, there's some people with independent minds still to some extent um, and tendencies, and I do think there are natural tendencies in human beings towards truth, towards virtue, towards wisdom, it's, it's, it's always going to be a battle. Um, and of course, not all of the structures and forms are so entirely corrupted. I mean, they're trying. This is the thing. We see them trying. It's plain as day, just like you say, that they're trying to do this and doing all sorts of things that would have been unthinkable and uh, unimaginable just a decade ago um, or two decades ago. Maybe some of it was going on, but it was so little known. But now it's more all around us. Um, so, so, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, I'm not, I'm saying we're on the verge where, you know, we have to worry about Tocqueville's warning. We have to take it really seriously. Uh, and, and, you know, like in Millet just got elected in Argentina. I was happy about that. So the election system there is not so corrupted that that can't happen. So that like that, for example, is a good sign. Uh, and we can hope that, it, that some of the other institutions have enough integrity in them still. Yes. Uh, or can bounce back somehow or repair enough that they could, they, that again, the power of virtue, if you will, a virtue subsuming true beauty and good, um, uh, just somehow, you know, finds its feet and, 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 you know, pushes back. It will, if it has the opportunity to. So this is yeah. reminding me of, of, of what Sharansky says in one of his books of, about the nature of the totalitarian state, that, there's maybe 30% of, of people who are subversive, who, who look like on the surface, they're going along with things because they're forced to, but underneath they pass their you know, typewritten, handwritten manuscripts back and forth. You know, one day those things get out. Then there's the opposite extreme, 30% who are clerks of the state, who, 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 who just do everything for their own betterment to try to, to cozy up to the totalitarianism. And then there's the middle 40% that can kind of know that something's wrong, but feel powerless to do anything at all, and, and they're just kind of stuck there. Yeah, and then there are the wicked, the what C.S. Lewis might call the inner ringers, who just want to keep climbing and be the conditioners, as he put it, in the abolition of man, uh, and and you know don't leave them out of the <laughs> the list, right? Well, they're part of the true believers, uh, you know, on, at the top end of those. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure what they believe. I'm not sure belief is a proper. <laughs> well, I, I think under stress, people can be made to believe almost anything. Mm -hmm. That it's it's very difficult. That's how could you have armies of of doctors all across the country believing that a medication that prevents people from dying from from COVID that had been used in more than three hundred thousand patients that you know, dozens of doctors had personal experience with in, in using and saving their patients, that it doesn't work for that purpose. How could you, how could you not, how, you know, I've had, my wife had uh, doctors that, you know, she goes in the, and they ask about her vaccination status and they say, you know, you're going to die if you're not vaccinated, you know, things like that. The, how could doctors believe this nonsense? They, they, you yeah. know, they've been propagandized, they have their fears and they're yeah. easily led astray because of their own motivations, not yeah, because of their yeah. rational thought. Yeah, yeah, they they just don't have the temerity, the independence of mind, the character, the you know backbone, however you want to put it, to um, be skeptical and think 
you know, illegal thoughts. <laughs> well, right. This is how in in Germany and in, in yeah. you know before World War II, that half of, of the Nazi Party was made up of doctors that they were the first to join. Mm. Yeah, incredible. They bought, they bought the propaganda that there were different classes of human beings, and that the less desirable ones could just be exited from society from from existence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the intellectuals, uh, there was a lot of intellectual horsepower, actually, in Nazi designs, I understand. Yes. Uh, and methods and strategies, tactics. Um, yes. Anyhow. So, so now, now, uh, now we're at, uh, you know, fighting the same thing here. Yeah. And we've seen the same thing in doctors in COVID that happened in Germany then. And the, the parallel is striking. And the issue is... What are we teaching people in life, in our whole educational system, that allows them to be this callous and cavalier uh, and and um, banal, you know, the banal bureaucrat, and counting numbers rather than recognizing human life? I think I, this is a great question, and you know, you 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 know, one way to think is, oh, why have people been? How have people been taught to be so bad? You know, Hannah Arendt offered a different take or perspective on this problem. She said that totalitarianism isn't about instilling, you know, pernicious convictions. It's about destroying the ability to develop convictions. So mm -hmm. what what the system, the, the educational system and so on needs to do to serve the left pots, if you will, is um, destroy people's ability, keep them from becoming adult and virtuous and civilized, keep them instinctual, primitive, you know? Right. And, and that's really, you know, like she said also, every generation is invaded by barbarians. We call them our children. <laughs> let, let me take a, a break here. We have to take a sure. break, so we'll come right back to that. So everybody, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Well, the year 2024 must be the year of the Patriot, and AmericaOutloud.news will equip you with all the information you need to give new meaning to the words Patriot Act. For our actions always ultimately define our words. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of going to the hospital. My doctor tells me nutrition doesn't work. Trust is earned. We are the Energetic Health Institute, and we want to earn your trust. Natural medicine, holistic nutrition, detoxification, fasting, cellular healing, and so much more. Remember, the best way to be free is to be healthy. So stop being a patient and start being a student at energetichealthinstitute.org. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. 
Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Professor Daniel Klein. We were just talking about our children, our next generation as the barbarians of, of our current society. That is true that as much as our children may represent some of our values, they tend to rebel against others. Well, the thing values. is they have to learn. They have to learn civilization. They have to learn our values. And if you prevent people from learning the, the values, the virtues of you know, let's let's call it a liberal republic, a liberal democratic republic. Um, they won't learn them, and then they how, are. How do they learn responsibility, civic responsibility? Exactly. You know, if we're not teaching civics, if we're not teaching government, if we're not teaching anything. Yeah, on and if, and and you know, the best way to teach, you say, how do they learn responsibility? The best way to learn X is to do X. In other words, give them responsibility, leave them responsible, make them responsible. Um, and that's is exactly what Tocqueville says. This is even just the bad, never mind the very bad, is this tutelary state, this this schoolmaster state constantly hovering in front of them like a helicopter mom. So so it denies people responsibility. They never learn responsibility or virtue. And then they're going to be dupes of um the very bad when it goes rogue the whole system well i know i mean how many surveys have you seen you know of the public where they ask some question about some political belief based on some fact and the people have no idea about the fact they say their political belief and then they say you know well you know where is that that thing you're talking about that shouldn't be we shouldn't be there and they say i have no idea or they put it on the on a different continent or or any of that kind of stuff that they it yeah. proves that they're mouthing slogans without actually knowing anything about what they're talking about yeah yeah and again just just not allowing them to be free denies them responsibility because responsibility comes with freedom so you know what's the drinking age now 21 and all these you know restrictions and restrictions on work um just so many things infantilization of of straight through adulthood really or you know senior years well, even. it's it's true i mean i don't know if this accounts for why adolescence keeps lasting longer and longer in each successive generation 
Right. I still feel adolescent in some respects, but that's me. <laughs> you know, I mean, but I, I think that's because of our the the high level of our economic climate out post World War II, and and how people did much better into the middle class in my parents' generation, say, and and so on, and so our economic circumstances were much better, and so we ended up getting a lot more spoiled than they were, for example, who lived through the Great Depression and and things yeah. like that. Uh, that's right. I think the wealth is a problem in a way because it creates such a cushion that when they do these things that, you know, strangle the goose that lays the golden eggs, well, it lays fewer golden eggs. And there's still so many golden eggs around that it's a little hard to ascribe or attribute causality and so on to their screw ups. So the fact that, you know, they're buying up of, you know, U.S. farmland and, and then making it unproductive to strangle the food supply to create chaos. Well, we know what happened in Sri Lanka when, when they they did that on the fertilizer, you know, that they basically tarted feather the, the prime minister or the president, whatever he was, that that there will be chaos when you start to really threaten people's existence in, in, in a general population way. But it's that people don't see this coming, that, that you know, that, that they see the government abetting all of this and they don't push back. They don't unelect the, the people in power who do this, who allow this. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. I, 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 I hope it goes better in the future. You mentioned earlier um, something about uh, what our government is doing around the world and how often it's not to the benefit of, of America or the world. And uh, like the Sri Lanka story and other places, uh, they're so interested in manipulating other governments and regime change. And in a way, I think, you know, they've been doing that for decades and decades, I think. And what we're seeing now is them doing that at home, in my view. Correct. Correct. We've seen our external state security agencies like CAA turn around and start. And, and in fact, this goes back now to the 1960s. It's not just in our recent generation. This is old, but it's been quieter. And yeah. but now it's much more aggressive. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, Tocqueville had no idea about having, you know, video cameras on every intersection, you know, like in, in London, yeah. for example, and coming here where everybody is monitored in public. Sure, we have no claim to privacy in public spaces, but that doesn't mean we have an expectation of being monitored in everything we do and absolutely everywhere we are. Yeah, he didn't foresee all the surveillance of technology, but still, he had the sense of this. Again, he said the master sees himself as a foreigner in his country and treats his subjects as having been defeated. Well, that's elitism. That That is by, by far the elitism but, of, of what we yeah. train our, our people. Mm, yeah, it's our a sense of like a conquer. But it's still a sense of like conquering and, and, and uh, enslaving. He's uh, yeah, and you know don't he speaks. Feel that? Don't, yeah, don't yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, I'm not disagreeing. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's more than just elitism, which can take other forms. Tocqueville uses the term servitude quite a bit, and and as you you know, Hayek wrote a great book, 1944, The Road to Serfdom, and he spoke about this coming in a sense modern serfdom. So he's warning too, you know. So to Hayek is strongly in this Tocqueville uh, warning tradition, and he explicitly uh, hat tips Tocqueville 
for this sense of like a coming slavery, a coming serfdom. And the WEF captures it so beautifully, you know, you will own nothing and be happy. Well, you, you won't be happy because <laughs> as, as I pointed out, first of all, it's propaganda, obviously, it's a slogan, but the whole point of the American experience is that each generation accomplishes something that assists the next generation in moving further up. And there are certainly fractions of the, of the population that don't get there because they don't have the cultural resources and, and, and cultural history to be able to push themselves into the system. And they, they somehow survive, but without changing generation to generation, except for a few. But, but the whole experience here is immigrants come to the country with almost nothing except their aggressiveness and their education and, 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 and personality resources. And they work hard, they develop something, their children take that something and, and move up the educational ladder, move up the, the, the economic ladder. They give that to their next generation and people start to be able to be fully middle class and upper middle class in that system as it should be because of acculturation to a, uh, an economic system that does work for the majority of people who fall in line with the government corruption, basically, that we've been talking about. Yeah. You know, that and, and so the idea that you will own nothing from the WF <laughs> means that you can never escape your economic slavery. Right. We will tell you when you can buy a shirt. Yeah. And you a... can't, you know, and and you will never have any ability to assist your children and grandchildren yeah. and helping them to do better than you did. Yeah, yeah. It's such a sinister idea. You will own nothing. And you, you spoke of the resources of personality. I mean, if nothing else, this, your soul owns your person. If you think of yourself as a soul, you, you know, if you don't even own your own person, if they actually mean own nothing, that's, right. that's such an anti-human thought. Uh, correct. But, but they're talking about basically as economic slaves. That, that's what, what they're saying. Yeah, and I yeah. don't understand why it doesn't apply to them. Why won't they own nothing? Also? <laughs> that's a good question. I got a question for you, Harvey. So how much of like free market, Thomas Sowell, uh, Milton Friedman, have you been exposed to? Is that part of your background? No. But you're, non all... you're nonetheless like just like 10 that way? I, I've just picked up my kind of common sense observations about mm -hmm. life in general. I, I unfortunately was the straight introverted scientist type. I was more interested in how atoms and molecules work and, and math and physics when I was a kid and, and put it around the garage making electronic devices with transistors and stuff. Mm -hmm. And rather than reading, and my parents were always complaining that I never read about philosophy and history and English and literature and all this stuff. And that's all true. I had my minimal acquaintance of that with, you know, in, in various public schools. And by the time I got to college at Caltech, it was almost all that way, you know, just heavy duty science and math. And so everything that I've picked up has just been kind of observations about life, which just seem obvious to me. Uh, oh, <laughs> I see. Well, your intuitions seem great to me. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious. Most people, again, need to get some kind of reading or instruction or learning, awakening in, in, in some of that stuff to uh, not fall into the usual verbalisms and slogans. So one thing I learned 
in college, my um, mentor, so to speak, was a physicist, Richard Feynman, who I knew personally, to some degree, and that he had an approach to thought, which is, I wonder how this X, Y, or Z works. And I can do a thought experiment about it. And then I wonder what that means as to how, where does that thought experiment go into the real world and how can I understand that? And it's kind of an unbridled uh, curiosity, which I have about how the world works. And so my mind is always going, trying to understand when I see something, I want to know how and why it does what it does. Wow. And so I'm essentially always on in that way. And I just think about things that I understand and perceive. And so when you see things that are obvious or make sense, you know, then you started asking questions and that's mm. all really that I've done, you know, and, and, and this is, some people call this critical thought. I just call it obsessive curiosity, but mm. that, that we should be thinking about things. All of COVID, all of the lies and everything about COVID is exactly what you said. It's the complete mesmerization of, of people's minds across the world. Ask yourself why people in all other foreign countries, more or less, and, and, all, and their governments were spouting exactly the same lies in the same week as, as our government was. It was orchestrated. Who was orchestrating it? Why were they orchestrating it? And why were those governments believing the propaganda? I understand when you when you propagandize by fear a population, you get them to be more compliant. But why were their governments who are supposed to have the inside knowledge of all this stuff going on, why were they just as, as susceptible to the propaganda as, as everybody else? I, I agree. It's really bizarre. And as much as I've been saying, you know, we've been saying all the things you and I have been saying today, it's still rather mysterious how this has been happening and how it operates up there among the inner ringers, if you will. So again, part of my curiosity is who stands to gain? What motivations is there for some agency entity or people to have inflicted on the, the uh, uh, this on us? And I've read widely in the COVID period about what my colleagues have been writing. Bobby Kennedy by far has had the most informative material out there because of his degree of evidence base that he has pulled together, sampled widely and representatively and made the case for various arguments. But the whole industry of what's been behind the pandemic and the pandemic is only an excrescence of this whole industry that this has been a problem that's been going on for 25, 30 years or, or longer that didn't hit such a, a, a dramatic damage point as it did in this instance, but is not nearly the first of its kind. And then there's some reasoning why the industry that has it, our bioweapons industry that inflicted this on us, needed some events to happen, which is why we got vaccines, why we got suppression of, of I, outputs and treatments and all that. I think the quest for money is definitely a big part of the story. Uh, but remember, it's it's not just the pharmaceutical companies selling vaccines and, and whatever they make money off of. It's what about all of the climate stuff, all of the DEI insanity, the foreign wars? Now, maybe it's the same story. You're going to go back, you know, maybe you can say again, well, it's again, people with greed. Uh, and that, that that's probably true. But greed and power. 
Yeah, yeah, power and a sense of vanity, a sense of uh, they want to feel right. You know, they want to they want self approbation. They want the and they're vain. They care so much about the inner ring, just as C.S. Lewis explains. They want that acceptance inclusion into these successively higher and more exclusive inner rings. Uh, is kind of so. I think there's a lot of like in that sense more immoral or motivation it's not just like they need another yacht or something correct it's a psychological demand for more wealth and power basically yeah right uh, right. uh, uh, eminence even inner ring inner 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 ring (laughs) but think about that that in in terms of human nature human needs you know our basic human need is to control nature to control the environment to protect us from our anxieties of being killed by yeah. hunger or beast yeah. or, or weather or whatever right yeah it's it's good to be a friend of the alpha male right the inner ring right to be close yes. to the to the center of uh decision and power and who eats first and who mates first in the in the hunter-gatherer band that's definitely in our right. genes right that's it that's in our genes it's a survival evolutionary benefit yeah and you know, and it has become toxic. Yeah, it's it's gone awry. It's it's you know it's forgotten civilization. It's forgotten the whole Judeo-Christian arc of civilization, uh, which I feel like flowered in a remarkable way uh, in the uh, last several centuries with what I would call the liberal arc. I'm a defender of the word liberal, and I don't I, yes. I mean it in the original political sense of the term. Um, and and that's all being subverted in a frightening way. I I agree with you. I think this is um, a, a terrible point that we've gotten to. You know, with the end of history ended long ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, on that on that great positive thought. <laughs> um we've we've end, ended our t- time for today we ran out of time for today so sure. well i uh hope uh listeners will not feel too depressed over our discussion and i'll try to have a more optimistic one <laughs> if that's possible uh given our current life circumstances and uh, and everything so but i hope everybody enjoyed this discussion uh, i certainly did and and if you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. So Daniel, thank you for some really great discussions. And thanks everybody for listening and please come back next week. Thank you, Harvey. <laughs>